According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are in Philippians tonight, Philippians chapter 1, and we are looking at verses 12 and following. Introduced a new section here on Sunday morning and got a little bit into it anyway, uh, detailing the occasion for writing and the circumstances here. I want to get right back to it again here tonight. So where we left off Sunday morning, we'll jump right back into Philippians 1.12. Uh, before we do get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to set aside our distractions and to provide abundantly for the teaching of His Word tonight. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight and the blessing we have to study the truth of your word. And we call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding, to bless us, Father, in our study of truth. We pray that the the word tonight will not be impaired in any way. I've got some congestion and and a little catch in my throat. But, Father, uh, you can overcome that. And uh, you are omnipotent in all that you do, Father. So be powerful tonight as you teach your word to your children. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we do want to take a few minutes, though, for questions and answers, and we've got a microphone ready to go. So it's been a couple of weeks, right? Lewis, you didn't do any questions last week. And also, there was somebody I promised, and uh, I have not looked up what I was supposed to look up, so I will do that in this coming week. But let's bring the microphone over here. <coughs> Okay, so on Sunday you were talking in Deuteronomy thirty-two forty-three about the Septuagint mm-hmm. inserts angels in, and I, that went way too fast for me, and I didn't get it. Oh, okay. Well, I'll show you. All right, yeah, that was the... My apologies, I was supposed to follow up on those two Hebrews passages, and I failed to do so. All right. Well, here is uh, Deuteronomy 32.43. Now, um, you've got the English text on the left, you've got the Hebrew text in the middle, and you've got the Septuagint text in the right. And the Septuagint was a, a translation that was done centuries before Christ, third and fourth century before Christ. And so um, it, it's useful, it's useful for Koine Greek studies, it's useful for a lot of things. But in particular, when it differs from the Hebrew, it opens up a possibility that our Hebrew manuscripts uh, have, have uh, issues, right, in, in how they've been copied and how they've been preserved and so forth. And so part of Old Testament textual criticism is to examine the Septuagint, to examine the Samaritan Pentateuch, to examine the Aramaic Targums, to examine some of the other early translations. And so, um, yeah, there's a difference here. In the English it says, Rejoice, O nations, with His people. And it starts there with, with the nations, with the, uh, the goyim, right? And, and so basically the English Bible is following after the, the, the Hebrew text rather than the Septuagint. But in the Septuagint text, it starts off here with the heavens. And so you got the urinoi there, the heavens. And uh, the heavens are, are called to worship before the earth is called to worship. And the angels are called to worship before the humans are called to worship. And so you got the... Uh, the sons of God here, the huioi theu there. And that's a reference to the sons of God that is in the Septuagint, but it's not in the Hebrew. That's what I was trying to say on Sunday. Yeah, uh, in fact, I can open up a, uh, an English translation of the Septuagint. Rejoice, ye heavens, with him, and let all the angels of God worship him. Rejoice, ye Gentiles, with his people, and let all the sons of God strengthen themselves in him. So that's an English translation of the Septuagint Greek. Thank you. Uh huh. All right, other questions tonight? Okay. Hi. Um, Solomon's been coming up a lot just in the last couple of weeks, mm-hmm. and. Um, I know the story of Solomon, and I guess I'm just having kind of a issue that I was hoping that you could kind of help me out with. 
Um, Solomon makes me really, really sad, you know, just the story of him. Uh-huh. And you kind of were talking about that last time. And I guess I just, I think my mom or somebody in my life when I was young told me, you know, once God has a hold on you, you can't, you know, let go of that or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I just, I kind of, I know we're not in the business of figuring out what happens to people's souls necessarily after they go, but Solomon really just provide some type of conflict for me um, because he was close with God and built the temple mm-hmm. of the Lord. And then he strayed at the end for all of his wives and da, da, da. Right. Um, could you just speak about, I mean, I don't know if that's true. You hear all these things like, well, once God's got a hold on your heart, you know, he doesn't let go. But in Solomon's case, it kind of seems that way. It does very so, much so. That's right. And I just so, I don't know what I'm asking. I just okay. want to learn a little bit more about that. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I appreciate that. Um, <clears throat> I do think Solomon is a great example in the human realm, the wisest human that ever lived, right? And just like uh, Satan was the wisest angel that was ever created. And in both cases, they failed to live according to their wisdom. And uh, Satan perverted his wisdom when he fell. And I think Solomon did the same thing. And so um, I think um, and there are certain Calvinist uh, theologies that don't like the idea of reversionism or a believer that dies the sin unto death. Um, but it, it's there. It's in the Scriptures. And there is a sin unto death. And um, we're going to see the warning passages in Hebrews. In those warning passages it says, Take care, brethren, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And that's a warning that's given to all church-age believers. So, um, no, I think it's a, it's a great warning to be mindful. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And uh, if, if you have wisdom, you've got to use it. You've got to live by it. And uh, otherwise, yeah, women can take you away, money, all kinds of things can seduce you away from the Word of God. Yeah. Okay, row behind there and then we'll come across here. Ellen's got a question. My question comes from uh, Psalm 89, which is one of the three passages that has the Davidic covenant explained, or uh-huh. at least in poetic form. Uh-huh. Uh, subsequently, um, little shortly after the explanation of the Davidic covenant, there is uh, a sort of a brief description in, chapter, in verses 38 through 45, um, where um, the psalmist Ethan, here in this case, um, is presenting a situation of the king's humiliating defeat. At what point in 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel might this event have occurred? You know, that is a puzzle. And, and uh, a lot of folks have been exploring that. We don't know. We don't entirely know. We can guess. Uh, we, can, we can guess at a certain things when um, Absalom revolted and David had to flee. Um, other things during the divided kingdom, perhaps. But it's not, uh, it's not entirely clear. It was definitely a low point in Judah's history. But, um, yeah, we can't, we can't pinpoint that with precision. That's a great question. All right, let's come back to the other side of the aisle then. Miss Richards, right there. Thank and you me. had a question too? Okay. Um, actually, it uh, starts in Isaiah 66, around 17, but the culminating verse is 21. Okay. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's talking about the end of uh, the second advent of Christ. It starts there and and goes on through 18 and 19, saying, um, and to 20, they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering. Mm-hmm. And then in verse 21, though, it says, I will take some of them for priests and for Levites. Mm-hmm. And I had thought, and you may have covered this, and I just missed it, that it's referring to Gentiles. It is. How can they be Levites? Uh, God adopts them into that tribe. Yeah, that's interesting okay. because there, are, there will be Gentiles who will volunteer for slavery, volunteer for bond service to be close to the Lord. And, uh, and so when God accepts them and adopts them into the Levitical tribe, He puts them into that into that realm for service. That's right. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And front row here. And then back row. Back to the Septuagint. 
um, mm -hmm. a lot of the New Testament quotations are seem to have been taken from the Septuagint, mm -hmm. and the uh, translators don't ever seem to take that into account. They just translate the Hebrew of the Old Testament from what they have, instead of looking ahead to see what the divinely inspired New Testament. So when we see that the quotation in the New Testament is different from what we have in our Old Testament, mm -hmm. we go with the New, right? We go with the manuscripts of the book that we're studying, right. And, okay. and then uh, we, we do the text criticism exercise to determine if the manuscript has a corruption, if there is a, a variant reading. And among all the variant readings, which uh, are the variant readings that are most likely the original, original manuscript? Okay. Yeah. All right, excellent question. All right, and then we're headed for Doug in the back row. We got one more first? Okay, real quick. Uh -huh. Okay, Ephesians one twenty one. Uh huh. So when Christ was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand in the heavenly places, and it says uh, he put all wait one twenty one far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also the one to come. Why is it one singular to come whenever there are ages? Oh, um, that's a very Hebraic way of thinking, and Paul is is reflecting on a, on a rabbinical view or on a pharisaical view there's this age and there's the age to come uh, this world and the world to come so that's uh, that's not with the precision of, of dispensations and ages as we would use them um, but yeah this age and the age to come it's like uh, when Jesus spoke of the unpardonable sin blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come this the similar idiom is used there as well It means in the resurrection. It means it means uh, here in time and in the resurrection. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I seem to have a frozen computer system here. That's kind of strange. All right, let's go to Doug for our last question. Uh, Revelation two seven. Okay. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Mm -hmm. and he's speaking to the churches, to mm -hmm. the church. Um, why is he granting us to eat of the tree of life um, that was uh, to keep uh, Adam and Eve alive, and um, we don't need to be kept alive? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a blessing. It's a reward. I believe it's because the bride of Christ will be a part of that fellowship. And, uh, you know, when you think about in the resurrection body, do we need to eat? Uh, Christ ate. He ate fish with his disciples in his resurrection body. So I think it's uh, it's an aspect of fellowship. It's an aspect of uh, of uh, enjoyment. Um, part of what we're going to see in in uh, Proverbs thirteen centers on the activity of eating, which tastes the flavors, which celebrates, which enjoys the fatness. And uh, in in uh, the Hebrew of uh, Proverbs thirteen. Uh, Fatness is a good thing, so I'm looking forward to preaching that in uh, different ways there. So, yeah, partaking of the tree of life. Now, you're correct in the sense that those that are still in their mortal bodies, they will require that tree of life for the preservation of their mortality, um, but still it's a reward for us in the body of Christ. Oh, thank you. I suspected that, so yeah. thank you. All right, well, appreciate all those questions. And like I say, I had one that uh, was still pending from two weeks ago that I apologize for. I will uh, work on that in this coming week, and we'll get that answered next week. Uh, let's uh, turn to Philippians 1.12 then and pick up our study where we left off. We'll see how long my voice holds up. <coughs> in Philippians 1, we uh, dealt with the salutation in verses 1 through 2. And then uh, we're outlining the remainder of the chapter into these sections. Verses 3 through 11 that we've completed already is the thanksgiving and prayer section. And that's centered on, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so we had a lot of messages there that centered on the beginning versus the perfection and, and what we're doing. Are we content simply being saved? Are we content with the beginning of our Christian walk? Or do we realize that there is a perfection that takes place. And God has not designed us to, to populate heaven with a bunch of spiritual babies. He wants us to grow up. There's a perfection that takes place here in time. 
the second section is verses 12 through 18. And it centers on, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And that's what we started Sunday morning, and that's what we're going to pick up again here tonight. He says in verse 12, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out. All right? They have come about or they have come to be for the greater progress of the gospel. And that seems to be a surprise. It is in contrast to what was expected. And uh, it may be that the ministry takes us in places we don't expect. And that uh, outcomes are things we never would have dreamed of because that's how God works. And that's how God uh, blesses us in, uh, in what He's doing. So we're going to be centering on this here uh, for some time in verses 12 through 18. And then we'll conclude the chapter in verses 19 through 30 with uh, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And uh, the great section there, you see it in verse 21. You see the principle that applies whereby we in the body of Christ uh, can operate by grace through faith day by day. And matters of life and death are kind of secondary. You know, whether we live or whether we die, that's in God's hands. And so long as we're here then, day by day we're serving Him. And uh, we can appreciate that as well. So looking at my circumstances have turned out, or really I should change that heading to the greater progress of the gospel. God is the author of progress. He's designed progress. God wants us to advance. He wants us to achieve. And He wants us to build on early achievements with greater achievements. And that's what He's designed us for. As part of what we do in the body of Christ, in uh, imitation of Christ, think about what Christ did in His first advent. What's He going to do in second advent? Because He was faithful in first advent, He's going to come back and He has even greater works to do. All right, And so we have the pattern there. <coughs> Alright. I should have called in sick or something. Goodness, what am I doing? <coughs> this occasion for writing section, it is a personal testimony to Romans 8.28. Right? We all know what Romans 8.28 says. Now Paul is illustrating that. All things work together for good. To those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. And so he tells them this. He says, hey, my circumstances, going to jail, it's the best thing that could have happened. The gospel is advancing in ways that it wouldn't have advanced otherwise. So join in the celebration here, is what he's saying. (coughs) His circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Now, uh, we had an A and a B and a C under this. The circumstances are the things with respect to him. It's ta kata emeh, the according to me things. <laughs> All right? The according to me things. And uh, the neat part about the according to me things is we all have them. Okay? You have your circumstances. I have my circumstances. Every believer does. And, and the neat thing about the Word of God is whatever your circumstances are, Scripture is sufficient. His, his Word is there. And His plan covers that. And uh, we have objective truth that applies to our subjective circumstances. And then we can rejoice in that. We're not enslaved to our circumstances. We don't uh, hang our heads in defeat and say, oh well, we can't help it and, and we're just uh, slaves to our circumstances. No. We have mastery. Uh, the circumstances and details of life. This is what God has designed us for. So we can be thankful for that. <coughs> All right. The things with respect to me and the things with respect to you and the things with respect to everybody else. And in some respects, they're completely irrelevant because doctrine is doctrine and there you have it. But clearly, if you're going through something, it's not irrelevant. It's everything. It's what you're dealing with. It's your job. It's your marriage. It's your family. It's your health. It's uh, whatever it might be. And so it becomes very personal. And, uh, and it doesn't help when somebody comes along and says, oh, big deal. Okay? Because it is a big deal. To you at least, right? You're learning what you're learning and the test is not, not fun. And you don't want to be told that, well, it's no big deal. Just get doctrine and grow up. Okay? It, because, it's, because it's so subjective, because it's so personal, we want to see the glory of Jesus Christ in all these things. All right. <clears throat> then the idea of progress. God is the true designer of the progressive movement. And I 
you know, have some fun with that. Um, it's in the news a lot. There's people that are all excited about being progressives and whatever. Okay, well, have fun. But God is the true designer of the progressive movement because God is the one that's progressing from alpha to omega. God's the one that step by step, day by day, is, is bringing all of creation to his conclusion. His victorious conclusion is the maximum glory of Jesus Christ. And uh, we can rejoice in that. The term prokope, when you think of progress, um, <clears throat> that's what we should be centered on. It's used here in verse 12. It's used again in verse 25. Paul says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So it's not just about my progress. It's your progress. It's all of us together as a local church makes progress, as individual believers within a local church make progress. And there it is. Uh, 1 Timothy 4.15 is the, the word of exhortation to the young pastor the, that he should grow up. And let no one look down on your youthfulness. And you're familiar with the text there? And he's supposed to set the example so that his progress would be evident to all. And I want to keep that in mind for two reasons tonight. Not only for the term progress, but also for what we have coming up next in what is evident, what is manifest. When we look at uh, verse 13, (coughs) we have an expression here, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ. My imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become evident, well-known, manifest. And there's a principle there. When God is manifesting something, then He has a purpose for manifesting it. He has a purpose for withholding things, but He has a purpose for manifesting things. And when He manifests it, we've got to pay attention. And that's the manifestation that we have in uh, 1 Timothy 4.15 as well. So that your progress would be evident to all. Okay? So God is the true designer of the progressive movement. And, and what bugs me to death, and just to me, I see so much Christianity that's making no progress at all. Isn't even trying to make progress. Doesn't know they're supposed to make progress. They, all they think that being saved is you go to heaven when you die. And, and there's nothing else in between. So you get saved, and then you're basically doing nothing except living life and having fun and you know, what's the difference between that and the unbeliever then? If you're just waiting to die, what are we doing in the meantime? We should be making progress. We should be growing. We should be bearing fruit. We should be advancing the kingdom. We should be serving the Lord. There should be progress in between. (coughs) And so um, think about what you're achieving and then put yourself in Acts 13. And uh, where it says, uh, David served the purpose of God in his generation and then was laid to rest with his fathers. Put your own name in there. I want to put my name in there. At the end of my life, I want to say, I accomplished God's purpose for my generation. And we should all be um, pursuing that. All right. And then we have the surprise. There's language here in verse 12 that speaks of rather or more. He says, uh, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater, rather, more, surprisingly more, progress of the gospel. Rather than less, it turned out to be more. And it's a surprise. It's just the opposite. Some people thought it would be less. Um, That probably wouldn't help. Well, thank you. start choked to death if I try to suck on a lozenge or something. All right. I figure out who drove the furthest and then when my guilt feels okay about them making the drive down here then we'll we'll call it a night and cut the the class short maybe, I don't know. But some of you drove a long ways and I, I feel bad about not giving you a full hour on the teaching. But there's a surprise here. The rather more. It's turned out rather for the greater progress of the gospel. Rather than less. 
It's turned out to be more. And uh, contrary to what people would expect. And uh, so there's a, a principle. And it's one that we find in Genesis 50. It's one that we find in, in Esther chapter 9. It's one that we find out in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Rather than being fearful, we have more courage. And that's going to happen here as well. Uh, not only has Paul had more ministry, but those that, that are around him have had more ministry. And it says um, in verse 14, most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So now not only does Paul have more ministry, but other people watching Paul, they get emboldened. They start preaching more. They start giving the gospel. And now it's multiplied all the more. And, uh, and that's, that's an exciting thing too. We'll talk about that because some have wrong motives. Some, to be sure, are preaching from envy and strife. <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? Ooh, Paul's in jail. Now's my chance. Okay? Now's my chance. Now I can have a ministry. Now I can do something. And then they're promoting themselves. Well, Paul says, okay, that's kind of a bummer, but whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being preached. And uh, that's a good thing. Paul was able to celebrate about that. All right, so let's move on to verse 13 and see how far we can get with it now. Don't, don't read verse 13 backwards. I, I read this so many times and I've gotten it backwards myself for years and years. I think a lot of people do. Progress in the gospel is what caused Paul's imprisonment to become well known. Not the other way around. Not the other way around. It was not Paul's well-known imprisonment which caused the greater progress of the gospel. It was the other way around. We have a so that uh, clause, an expression here. In the Greek it's hosta. We have a, a, a result. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known. So don't confuse the event with the outcome. The event is greater progress in the gospel. The result, well known. Okay? Not the other way around. And it's not a case where somebody becomes notorious or they become a celebrity or they become well known for something. You know, ooh, that's the guy who did whatever. Okay? And then because they're well known for something, they then want to, you know, they want to profit on that. They want to, they want to uh, market that. They want to uh, flip that into something, uh, an opportunity for whatever else. Okay. <coughs> Captain Sully lands a plane on the Hudson River. Okay. Good for him. And and so it ends up with a movie deal and a book deal and whatever, whatever. I don't blame him for a bit, you know, because he's a hero. Look what he did. And uh, and how often is that going to happen? So he's going to parlay that. And, and I'm happy for him. Great. Okay? But that's not what this passage is saying. Paul's not saying that his celebrity, his well-known imprisonment, has then opened up wider doors for service. It's just the other way around. It's the wider doors for service, the more fruitfulness, that then manifest that his imprisonment was in Christ. That his imprisonment was in Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about here. All right. So if you want vocabulary, we can give you a lot of vocabulary. We're not going to spend time looking at any of them, really. Paul's desmos, plural would be desmoi, his chains. No question, he was literally imprisoned. He was in jail. A lot of people think Rome, I think Ephesus, but wherever it was, he was imprisoned. But his chains became something. And the, and the verb there is genomai. And we love genomai. Genomai speaks of a, of a becoming. Something that they were not before. And uh, like the word became flesh, right? And so his chains became something more than chains. His chains became a, uh, a, a manifestation. And the noun there is phaneros. And that's what we're going to focus on, phaneros. I don't know how far we'll get with it tonight. I don't know if my voice will hold up, but phaneros. Think um, phaino, phanerao. Think it's a verb that speaks to shine. 
right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Okay, we can sing the song. Well, you can sing the song. I'm not singing anything. <clears throat> but the idea is when the light comes on, what happens? Things appear. Something you didn't see in the dark. Flip the light and all the cockroaches go scrambling for whatever. Okay? But when the light comes on, things appear. And that's what uh, a phoneros is. A phoneros is an appearance. It is a, uh, a manifestation. Okay? What to my wondering eyes should appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. Okay? So when something appears, and this is what happens here, his chains became an appearance. They became a manifestation. They became a testimony. That his chains became manifestly in Christ. In Christo. Alright? And this powerful phrase of in Christo. Normally when we encounter it, we're teaching the doctrine of positional truth. We're teaching the blessing, of what it means to be a church age believer. The fact that if you're saved today in the church age, you're part of the body of Christ. You are in Christ. All right? And normally in the New Testament when we find that phrase in Christ, in most cases it references positional truth. But here in this case it's representing something else, something that goes with positional truth in Christ. Because guess what? If you name the name of Christ, guess what else you're entitled to? The sufferings of Christ. Okay? You name the name of Christ, you are a partaker of the sufferings of Christ. And you're going to take up your cross and follow Him. And that means suffering. That means hardship. That means maybe jail. Maybe whatever. Okay? Martyrdom. Whatever it may be. And uh, because because of the great progress of the gospel in jail, among the praetorian guards, among all the rest, everybody that Paul had an encounter with, because the gospel wasn't stopped, it became manifest to everybody. Wow, we know why you're here. We know why you're here. For whatever reason, the uh, people put them there. You know, with respect to the prison epistles, we don't know why Paul was in prison. What was the charge? What was he charged with? You know, pull up his case on the, on the website. What does it say? Some trumped up thing. Jealous Jews, whatever it was. Sedition, rebellion, whatever it was. What was he charged with? Even when he was arrested in Jerusalem and he went all the way to Rome when he appealed to Caesar, he got there and they, and they said, we don't have any paperwork on you. What are you arrested for? What are you charged with? What's the, what's the crime? How do we try a case when there's no paperwork? <laughs> okay? Same thing here. He's in prison. We're told repeatedly, chains, chains, chains throughout this chapter. But we don't know why. Who filed the charges? Who arrested him? Who presided? None of that's uh, at all relevant in the doctrine of Philippians. And so it's not presented in the text. But for whatever reason, whatever the earthly excuse was, right? Like they made up stuff about Jesus. And so they arrested him. And, and Pilate said, um, why is he here? <laughs> you know. And, and what did the Sanhedrin say? Well, clearly he's guilty or we wouldn't have brought him to you. Put him to death. What has this man done that's worthy of death? What's the charge? Well, it becomes manifest. Manifest in Christ. That his chains are in Christ. That he is um, a prisoner, not of Rome. He's a prisoner of Christ. And that he is exactly where Christ wants him to be. That's exactly where he needs to be. So what was manifest? Not the fact of Paul's chains. I mean, it's obvious he's in chains. <laughs> there he is. But why is he in chains? What's manifest is the nature of his chains. That he is his chains are in Christ. And so when we look at the text and <clears throat> we read about these desmos or these desmoi these chains are manifest. They are on display spotlighted as being in Christ. And that's a blessing. 
And I want to take tonight, I want to take however long it takes. Um, <clears throat> got a lot of verses to look at. Because God is so faithful when He teaches and when He reveals and when He spotlights something. If He shines the light on something, He expects it to be looked at. He expects it to be seen. In fact, we're told that we're without excuse. Romans 1, right? Creation spotlights the power of God so that we are without excuse. That which is known about God is evident. For God made it evident. God revealed it. And so this is the point. When God causes something to appear, that apparent thing leaves us without excuse. Because God is the one that made it appear. And, um, you know, <coughs> in some respects, I think, uh, as Thomas Jefferson wrote in our Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, right? That anyone looking at it is aware of the fact that it is evident. It is laid before mankind by the nature of what it is, okay? It is evident. Think about it in a, in a forensic sense. God entered it into evidence, and now it's a matter of public record. It's a matter of cosmos record. So because he made it evident. When God causes something to appear, that apparent thing leaves us without excuse. Now think about it. If God wanted to stay hidden, none of us would know that there was a God. Okay? None of us would know. If he, if he had not created the universe the way that he did, he could have created a universe that didn't display his nature didn't display his power. He didn't have to create a universe at all. But he did. So that finite creatures could see the infinite. So that finite beings could observe order and structure and light and glory. So when God causes something to appear, that apparent thing leaves us without excuse. So um, we have the verb phino, P-H-A-I-N-O, that's the uh, first one there, number 5316. <clears throat> That's the verb that means to, to shine, okay? To shine a light. Phanaros uh, is an apparent thing, something that is manifest, something that is beheld. Phanarao is, really it's a compound of phino and not a lot of difference between them. I think often they're used interchangeably. But it's another verb. To, uh, to bring to light, to expose to the light. You know, um, all things are, are made visible when they're exposed to the light. There are passages that speak of that. Things that are done in secret, they're not going to stay secret. Judgment day is coming, and they will all be made clear. They'll all be held up to the scrutiny of God. And uh, they'll be exposed for what they are. Either gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, stubble, whatever the case may be. So, um, Here's a combined list. There's 120-something passages. There's a lot of passages we could look at. This is really an abbreviated list. I I limited it to Matthew and John. There's a whole lot more I could have done in Luke. A whole lot more I could have done in Acts. I gave a couple from Acts. Really, there's a ton in 1 John. Okay? But I left those out as well. I think think this sample is going to be useful for us in this regard. So start with Matthew one twenty. <laughs> you may want to finish teaching this hour. I'll have a seat. Just come up here and read the slide. Okay, maybe not. Matthew one twenty. <coughs> When he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Here's our term, phino, appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. So we have an appearance. It's a heavenly appearance. All right? And so God is making something apparent. An angel that he couldn't see before, now he sees it. Now he's got to pay attention. Same thing in chapter 2 and verse 7. Herod secretly called the Magi, and determined from them the exact time 
that the star appeared. Oh, they left the east. They left the east when the star appeared. When did the star appear? Because he wants to murder the babies. Okay. Uh, likewise, verse 13, verse 19. When they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there. That's verse 13. Verse 19. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Okay, get up, take the child. And so these are all appearances. And we should be very familiar with all these passages. It's no, it's no uh, surprise. So if an angel appears, will that get your attention? Okay? That's the terminology for Paul's chains. Paul's chains appeared. They were manifest as being in Christ. All right? It became apparent to these guards, to the unbelievers, to everybody looking. It became apparent that these chains were in Christ. That's the point that he's making in Philippians chapter 1. <clears throat> Matthew 6. <clears throat> um, in verse 5, in verse 16, in verse 18, um, every, in all three of these examples you have religious people that are doing things for the appearance. They want to be seen. They want the things they do to have an appearance. And, uh, and Jesus calls them hypocrites. He says, when you pray, when you give, when you fast, everything you do should be before the Lord. So in Matthew 6, 5, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, on the street corners, so that they may be seen. They can make an appearance. Same thing today. There's all kinds of religious people today. The only reason they go to church is to be seen, to make an appearance. And that way the fellow people in the community think that they're fine, upstanding members. And it's all about maintaining the appearances. Okay. Anyway, those are the three uses there in uh, Matthew chapter 6. In John chapter 1 and verse 31. John the Baptist says, I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. Now think about why he did this. Wasn't it sufficient that he was born in a manger and that angels testified and that shepherds went in there and found him and there was a public witness to his birth? What is this thing about the baptism in the River Jordan? Why is it that there's a herald that has a ministry that announces him and then the Holy Spirit descends and the voice comes out of heaven? What is the purpose? Why does God manifest things in this way? Because that's what God does. Okay? God, um, (coughs) he's perfect in all that he does, but he's also perfect in how he teaches it, how he demonstrates it, how he shows it. He wants us to see it. He wants the angels to see it. The elect angels and fallen angels, they've got to bear witness that this is His Son. And so He's manifested. Manifested to Israel. I came baptizing in water. John 2 and verse 11. Turning water to wine, guess what? The beginning of His signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory. And His disciples believed in Him. And so we have the use of manifesting. Let's keep in mind that God publicly displays what He publicly displays. And that's a part of the manifestation. You and I, our lives are manifest. We're being observed by angels. We're being observed by angels and men alike. The manifold wisdom of God is on display through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. We're on display. That's manifest. There's so much, I think, that that goes into this that we want to pay attention to. John uh, 3.21 Verse 20 says, Everyone who does evil hates the light, does not come to the light, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Okay? Uh, You know, dirty deeds done dirt cheap. Okay? Uh, Dirty deeds, you just... 
Um, you know, you don't want people seeing what you're doing. But, but if you're in walking in the light, put it out there. Put it on display. The Father will be glorified. The Son will be glorified. He who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Okay? See, Satan works in realms of darkness. He works in realms of shame. He, want, you know, he, he, he offers to keep our secrets for us so that he can have power over us. Okay? But when you're serving the Lord and everything is out there in the open and it's all transparent and it's by the grace of God that you are what you are and the grace of God you do what you do. And is there shame? No, not really. I mean, yeah, there's things you're not proud of, but hey, God's grace is there and we're thankful. And then there's no, there's no power over you. The devil can't say, ooh, you better do this or I'm going to tell that. And whatever. Hey, tell what you're going to tell. Because I stand before Jesus Christ. He's my, he's my Savior. And I appreciate that. So uh, practice the light so that your deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. It's on display. It is for everybody to see. John 7, 4. (laughs) Unbelievers will always have opinions. Family members will have opinions. Remember Sharon's Uncle Bob, uh, Man, he always had opinions for uh, what we were doing wrong and what we could do to get more church members. And, uh, and I, don't think he, I don't know if he was saved or not, but he had a lot of opinions for, uh, for what we needed to do here in the church. And uh, here's Jesus' brothers saying, man, you've got to get out of Galilee. You've got to go to Jerusalem. There's a small potatoes here. You've got to go big time. Go to Jerusalem. <coughs> No one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Be on display. Go big time. For not even his brothers were believing in him. I like that. All right, John 16, 26. Um, no, not the verse I was thinking of. Hmm. Well, I'll find that. Oh, you're right, you're right, that's Romans. Um, okay, thank you. So I'm still in John. John 7, 4, John 9, 3. Thank you, thank you. They want to know, this man born blind, was it his sin or his parents' sin? Who sinned, this man or his parents, so that he would be born blind? You know, you don't do a lot of sin in the womb, okay? I don't know, you know, what kind of sinner he was in utero, but... um, Jesus says, you're missing the point here. It was neither this man's sin nor his parents. But it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Think about it. Different things you get assigned. Cancer or you know, loss of employment or other tests. It's not, maybe, maybe it's not divine discipline. Maybe it's not deserved suffering. Maybe it's completely undeserved suffering. It has nothing to do with what you've earned or deserved. But it's so that God's grace can be on display. That God's power can be on display. That God's going to do things through that testing He couldn't do in other ways. It's better that you go through this for the increased progress of the gospel. So that the works of God might be displayed in Him. You know, power is perfected in weakness. If you never submit to the weakness, when will you ever experience the power of God? So there's a principle in that. Okay. <clears throat> Related to different things, you know. It's that stupid sound of music song too. Um, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. No, you didn't. Just <laughs> quit that right here, right now. But that's the way the world thinks, isn't it? 
You know? You can work for something, deserve something. Totally in defiance of grace. John 17.6 He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. It's about manifestation. What are we doing to manifest? What are we doing to manifest? There is so much more. I'm running out of time. I'm running out of voice. But the idea of a manifestation, keep in mind, God Did I include it in Romans 3.21? Let me see if it's Romans 3.21. Yeah, being manifested. See, God is the justifier. I'll have to close with this, but we'll come back on Sunday and we'll get the rest of these from John and Acts and Romans, but Let me give you Romans 3 to think about. Verse 21 says, Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and by the prophets. Why was the law given? Why were the prophets given? Why was the Old Testament given? Why were all these prophecies given so that now Christ can arise? And then Christ can go to the cross and He can do the work. And all of this is a display. Notice in verse 25, talking about Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood. God displayed publicly. It was not enough that God saved everybody. Was that not enough? Jesus died on the cross and saved all of humanity. Not only was that not enough, but the Father made it a display to demonstrate His righteousness. In the uh, forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say. See, God demonstrates. He shows things. He displays things. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness in the present time. So that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There is so much in that doctrine. Just chew on it between now and Sunday. Okay? That not only does God do everything perfectly, He displays it perfectly. There will be no doubt. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bend. The display will be undeniable. Even the unbelievers, even the fallen angels will not be able to help themselves. They will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord as they're cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. Because God displays these things in the way that He does. So Paul's chains became an apparent display. They became a manifest display of being in Christ. I'm going to pick up on this again Sunday morning. Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your faithfulness. I pray for a better voice on Sunday. And uh, the rest is in your hands. Thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.